0: Malachi is a prophet, although there's not much known about him. It was about a hundred years after the exiles returned from Jerusalem to, uh, to Jerusalem from Babylon, and guess who was probably the leader in Jerusalem at that time? Nehemiah. Remember, we went through the book of Nehemiah on the weekends. We took eight weeks to do that. So this is the time uh, Malachi come in. This in a period probably the walls were built at this time. Nehemiah was the governor and. Malachi comes in with a word from the Lord. In fact, his name means messenger. So he's really a messenger from God. And what's really interesting in this book, in two weeks we'll do chapters three and four, 47 out of 55 verses have God speaking in the first person. So it's kind of an interesting book in that. In fact, this book contains seven questions Against God. Seven questions that the people are saying about God to God, and God spends all those verses that I'm talking about, 47 out of 55, where He's answering the people based on their questions. Sometimes He's giving the question because He knows they're asking it, so He says, You say this, and then He brings out His answer, and we'll get into that as well tonight. Now, the reason why we think this was also the time of Nehemiah. If you remember, when we studied the book of Nehemiah, he had to address the people. It wasn't just about building the wall back up, but he addressed the spiritual climate in Israel at the time. And there was five main things that he was having to address with the people. And it's interesting because all five of these things are things that Malachi was addressing with the nation of Israel. And I don't have it on the slide, but let me just share them briefly with you. We'll get into this one tonight. The, the, the Israelites were marrying pagans, especially the men marrying pagan women. So that was one of them. Next was they weren't giving to the Lord. They were not tithing. They weren't giving to support the ministry that was taking place there. So that was the two, second one. Third one was corrupt leaders. We'll get in that one tonight as well. The leadership were, were becoming corrupt, this, the priests and so forth. The fourth one is the people were not keeping the Sabbath. That was a big thing. Now God really said, man, you gotta keep the Sabbath, keep it holy. And the fifth thing was they were there were in, injustices taking place. There was a lot of favoritism that the people, the leaders were doing favoritism. They were they were looking past what some people were doing that was wrong and favoring those that they had relationships with, and so forth. So so those are the five things that are in the book of Malachi, as well as things that Nehemiah was dealing with. So hopefully that kind of sets the stage. Now let's get into chapter 1, verse 1. A prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? So there's one of those seven questions that the people are asking against God. You have asked, how have you loved us? Then God responds, was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, and I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. So we, we start right away with this first concept. In fact, I titled this message tonight, Secure in God's Love. What's so important for all of us as Christ followers is that we are secure in God's love. Now some of you may not feel that. Maybe you've been gone through a lot of hard times in your life, or maybe things just haven't worked out for you, and you don't feel real secure in God's love. We're going to talk about that tonight. In fact, this is a... First thing that these people of Israel were were saying against God, how have you loved us? You haven't loved us. Well, you know, we are going through tough times. God, and what God is giving them is an example between two brothers, Jacob and Esau. The people of Esau were known as the Edomites. They were the descendants of Esau, the Edomites. And then there was Jacob. Jacob became the father of the people of Israel. And what God is saying there is. I love Jacob and Esau I hated. Now don't get too hung up on that hated part like, well oh, God's pretty mean there. He's hating someone. What he's saying there is I've loved one, I've selected one and one I have rejected. That's what that that hatred there is. I have not selected you. I have not I have rejected you and it wasn't about a person. It was about a country. And the reason for that is because these people We're not followers of God. They were constantly going into idolatry. In fact, they would come against the people of God. So the Edomites became enemies of Israel. And God's saying, hey, I've rejected you. I've hated you as a group of people. And why is that important for Israel? Israel should say, I see that God's favor has been on us and hasn't been on the Edomites. God's saying, you say, how have you loved us? You should look around and say, Your enemies, I've gone against your enemies. I've blessed you as a people. Remember, they were the one brought into the promised land. It wasn't the Edomites. He's saying, in fact, the Edomites, I've turned their land into a desert. They don't have the blessings of God on them. You have the land flowing with what? Milk and honey. So God's trying to show them, I've loved you. But why? And and actually, let's look at this first question up on the screen. Do you ever doubt God's love? See, it's so important that God wants us to be secure in His love. Now, I really believe in an audience this big, as well as those watching online, there are some of you who are not secure in God's love. And why might that be? Well, I I jotted down a few things. First of all, have you been praying a prayer for a long time and it doesn't seem to be answered? At least not answered the way you want it to be? Sometimes the enemy can say, see, God doesn't love you. He doesn't hear your prayers. Or... You have a loved one who's suffered or maybe maybe even died at an early age. That's a real easy one. Pastor David Barnes this weekend talked about sometimes people can actually get angry at God and actually hold unforgiveness towards God when certain things happen. That could be a source of people not feeling God's love. Maybe you've been rejected. A spouse walked out on you. A parent left you. A parent won't contact you anymore. Maybe one of your own kids won't even have anything to do with you. You feel rejected. That rejection, if you're not careful, can turn into kind of like this distance between you and God, where you feel like, I don't know, God, why did you allow this to happen? Don't you love me? I look at so-and-so, and and their family seems to be perfect. At least it is on social media. You know that. Everybody looks perfect on social media. Nobody ever posts their, their bad days on there, do they? But... It's a, it's a way that Satan kind of gets into people's minds. Oh, see, God loves them. He doesn't love you. Or sometimes we're just dealing with guilt, shame, condemnation, maybe from our past, even though God's forgiven us. Maybe there's personal suffering that you're going through. You know, that's why God moved on my heart, I believe, to, to pray for healing for you. And I'm trusting that God is healing you. But sometimes when, we, when we're in pain and suffering, it, the enemy can use that and say, well, see, why is God allowing that to happen to you? So-and-so doesn't have that. Maybe there's been a financial loss, broken relationships. Maybe even church hurts. We'll talk more about that one in a little bit when we talk about spiritual leaders. All these can be reasons why people can doubt God's love. We compare ourselves to other people. It's a very dangerous place to be at. So here's our first point tonight, is God's love for us is shown by His grace. This is what God was trying to show the nation of Israel. I've given you so much. I've blessed you. Compare yourself to the Edomites. We are a blessed people. God's grace demonstrates His love for us. And how has God loved us? By coming to this earth? By dying for us? by paying the ultimate price, that suffering on the cross for our sins, and it could go on and on and on, God's grace for us. I, I heard this many years ago, and I, and I love to use this from time to time, that the one who knows me the best, more than anybody other person, even my own wife sitting over there, the one who knows me the best, who's the Lord, loves me the most. Some, some of you think, well, if, someone, if they really knew me, they probably would reject me. But remember this, the one who knows you the most loves you. So be secure in his love. So now, let's, uh, let's keep moving on in the, uh, uh, the passage here. But before we do that, here, here's an important thing and why this is so important, is that doubting God's love makes us question him when bad happens. You'll see that up on the screen. I hope it's going to come up. There it goes. Doubting God's love makes us question him when bad happens this is why when sometimes somebody has something bad happen to them they grieve they have a hard time you know it's 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 tough but they get through it and they actually get through it many times better than when they came into it but then there's another group of people that just completely fall apart maybe walk away from the lord walk away from other people they just throws them in such a tailspin and that's why it's so important for us to be secure in God's love. So let's keep moving on in the, in the story here, or in the message that God has. Verse 4. And I've got to take my watch off so I can watch the time, since the clock isn't working in the back. Otherwise, you don't know when you're going to get out of here, do you? <laughs> Some of you are like, watch that watch now closely. Verse 4. Edom may say, so this is talking about the, the, the descendants of Esau. Edom may say, though we've been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord even beyond the borders of Israel." So what God is saying there in that passage is that the Edomites, they're going to say, we don't need God. We'll build ourselves back up. We'll do it ourselves. And God's just saying, uh, they may try, but they're not going to win against me. They might build up. I'm going to bring them right back down. Now, Israel, watch and see. That should show you that I'm loving you. I'm caring for you. This group of people. Remember, Esau was the brother of Jacob. They came from Isaac. They had the same father. One God chose, loved, it says, one he rejected. It says he hated. It wasn't related to the individual. It was to the nation. So what God is saying there is, this Edomites, they become self-reliant. And they're like the world that we live in today. You know, many unbelievers, they say, I don't need God. You Christians, you need like a crutch. If anybody says your Christianity is a crutch, you correct them and say, no, it's more like life support. It's not just a crutch. It's life support. I need it for everything. We do need God. But here's an important principle for us is that is our motivator in serving God must be in response to his love. See, once we get it down deep, we're securing his love. Our, that's our motivator for serving him. This is the difference between, oh, I have to versus I want to. If you're securing God's love, then what's going to happen is you're going to, I want to respond back to God. He's loved me. He's given me so much. And see, this is what the, what the people of Israel weren't seeing. They weren't seeing this love that God had for them. And so they were kind of like ah, indifferent towards God. See, if we do a lot of good works, sometimes we can think, well, God owes me. I've done a lot of good works. Oh, boy, look at me, God. Or if we do a lot of bad, then we think we somehow owe God. Both of those are wrong. Here's the key. I was forgiven much. He loves me so much. He's forgiven me so much. I want to love him back. I want to serve him back. I don't have to. I want to. And this is why this was an issue for these people. And you know what? If you get into the, I have to, that's religion. That's legalism. The relationship is, I want to. So that's why this is an important message. Well, let's keep going. Now it's going to kind of shift gears a little bit. Verse 6, a son honors his father and a slave his master. If I'm a father, where's the honor due me? So God's talking to the people again about himself. If I'm a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you priests. So now he's got a message for the spiritual leaders. Who shall contempt for my name? But you ask. So here's another question. How have we shown contempt for your name? Now God's going to answer them. By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask. Don't you love how God's doing this? How have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. That contemptible just kind of means like there's no value there. You know, it minimizes the value. You take it too lightly. Verse 8. When you, and this is how God was saying they were doing it. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you says the Lord Almighty? So what were these people doing? They knew they were in a sacrificial system that they would bring their gifts to God, their sacrifices, sacrifices for the forgiveness of sin, sacrifices for the for the work of the Lord to be given. But instead of obeying the law which required giving like Animals, you know, like, let's just take a lamb. A lamb without blemish or without spots, you know, a perfect one. They would have one that's in really bad shape, maybe one that's going to die in a week or so. Well, let's give that one to the Lord. Do you see how that's legalism? They feel like they're going through the motions, they're going through it, they're, they're, they're giving, but they're not giving it with the right attitude. And that's what these people are doing. It's like they were giving something that was going to be worthless to them. Oh, we'll give that to God. And God's saying, you, you wouldn't get by giving that to your governor, you know, like as a tax, but yet you're doing it to God. You're showing me that you don't really even honor me in that respect. So God's calling the people out, and he's calling the priests out on their lack of giving with the right attitude, the right motive. It's like giving God our leftovers. It's kind of like I heard a story one time of a man, he had two cows, and he told the pastor, I'm going to give, when I get ready to sell one of these cows, I'm going to give a cow to the work of the Lord in the church. And the pastor said, well, which one is it going to be? He said, oh, well, we'll get to it when we, when we get ready to take them to market, then I'll take care of it. Well, when the time came, one of them died, didn't get to go to market. Then the guy said to the pastor, I'm sorry, the one I was going to give to the Lord, he died. Kind of like, a, you know, that was the one, you know, even whether whether it was or not. It was just kind of like a, a way of saying, well, now I don't have, I'm off the hook. I don't have to give the other one to God. So we want to, here's the next point. Let's make sure we give God our best and he is our priority. One of the things I learned on, and we'll get to this in two weeks when we talk about tithing, I learned from the very beginning of my Christian walk at the age of twenty to be a giver to God. I've never known in my Christian life not to tithe, and God has blessed me incredible. And when I got saved, I was a college student working part-time jobs to pay for my own college. Barb was the same way. We learned to give from a very beginning, and God has incredibly blessed us. You can never outgive God, but we don't give because oh, I got a gift, huh? We give because, look what God's given to us. It's a small little token of, of appreciation back for all that He's done for us. So we never want to just give God our leftovers or feel like, "Oh, you know, I'm going through the motions." But now we're going to see how these priests, they really were misrepresenting God when they would allow for this to happen. Why was this misrepresenting God? Well, the animals were to be given that were perfect. They were actually to be inspected without spot, without blemish. Why? Why was that so important? Because these animals given for sacrifices were representation of what was going to happen when the final Lamb of God came. Jesus came as a perfect Lamb. The perfect one, without sin, no sin nature. He came as that final sacrifice. So these were foreshadowing. These these animals that were given, it was so important that these weren't just roadkill given okay like oh that thing died let's go give that to the lord they were to be the prize they were to be the priority and and perfect animals and they were representation of what was going to be coming with jesus let's keep going verse nine now plead with god to be gracious to us with with such offerings from your hands will he accept you says the lord almighty "'Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors.'" And now God's speaking to them and saying, "'You know what? It'd be better just to close the church. "'If this is how you're going to operate, "'if this is how you're going to treat me, "'you know what? "'It's better just to close the doors.'" So look what he says. "'Oh, that one of you just would shut the temple doors "'so that you would not light useless fires on my altar.'" "'I'm not pleased with you,' says the Lord Almighty, "'and I will accept no offering from your hands. "'My name will be great among the nations.'" From where the sun rises to where it sets, in every place incense and pure offerings will be brought to me, because my name will be great among the nations," says the Lord Almighty. See what God was taking very serious was His name, His reputation. He wanted it to be done in the right way. He didn't want people to go through the motions, and that's what was happening. You know what was happening? They were really take, it was a form of taking the Lord's name in vain when they were given these type of animals, sacrifices, and so forth. Look what it says on the screen in 1 Samuel 15, verse 22. It says, But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. What God was saying through the prophet Samuel there to the nation of Israel, and this was hundreds of years before Malachi, was that, I want you to obey me. I'm, not, I'm more interested in your obedience and your relationship than you just giving an animal. It's really not about the animal as much as it is about an obedience. It's about a heart. So now we're going to skip over to chapter 2. Let's go to chapter 2, start in verse 1. Now it gets a little stronger with the spiritual leaders. Now, you priests, this warning is for you. If you do not listen and if you do not resolve to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse on you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them because you have not resolved to honor me. So what was happening with the priests is the priests were allowing the people to give these things they were they were not treating it right they were like letting the people do whatever they wanted they weren't representing god well and god's calling them out on it and says you know what you're going to incur a stricter judgment because you're a priest you're to be the leader just like and i just have to share this i see a couple of the pastors in the audience it's a heavy thing for us as pastors we do not take this role lightly what we do when we stand before you and teach God's Word or, or lead you in, in any way spiritual, not only is it an important thing, but we know that we incur a stricter judgment from God based on how well we lead. Look at this passage from James chapter 3 up on the screen. It says, Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach... Will be judged more strictly, and then then he throws this in in verse two. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. It's kind of a a tough situation because here we are as teachers, but yet we're not perfect. We're going to incur a stricter judgment. So the best thing for us as pastors to do is don't bring our opinion into it. Bring the Word of God. Teach the Word of God. Not just share a bunch of neat stories from our, our past week and so forth, but to stick to the Scripture. Teach the Word of God. That's why it's so important. That's what the foundation of Calvary Chapel was built on, was teaching the Bible, going through verses of the Bible to help us learn. And if we teach the Bible, hopefully we don't get off track. But even then, sometimes we will make mistakes, because like the Scripture says, we all stumble in many ways. We're not perfect. Let me tell you, sometimes I'll say a blunder. Usually somebody will call me out on it, I'll get an email, i have to apologize and so forth. So have some grace with us pastors. No, we don't try to intentionally mislead anybody, but we do take it very serious. And so, you know, something I'm constantly thinking of, well, let's look at this point up on the screen and I'll talk more. Spiritual leaders, and many of you are spiritual leaders, even if you're not a pastor, we are to be examples of what God is like. If you're a parent, you're a spiritual leader. If you're a community group leader, you're a spiritual leader. If you teach or represent God in any way with a group of people, you're a spiritual leader. And we are to be examples to others of what God's like. Now, here's part of the heavy thing that I feel This is why it's so important for you to pray for us pastors. I'm only one mistake away from not only ruin me, ruin my family, but probably ruining a lot of you. Am I right? One one mistake away. And all we have to do is look past, see what sometimes other pastors have done, what they've said, how they've lived their lives or whatever. That caught me back in the in the 80s, I got really hurt in a church. I had pastoral credentials, and I sent them back to the denomination headquarters, and I said, I don't want to be a pastor anymore because I was hurt. My senior pastor committed adultery. My best friend, who was associate pastor, committed adultery. It ruined me for 13 years. I, didn't, I, didn't, I said no to the calling of God on my life for 13 years because of that. But God's calling wouldn't get away from me. <laughs> I can run, but I couldn't hide. God drew me back, brought me to this wonderful church. I've learned so much here. But it's a heaviness that we carry, that we want to represent God well. These priests were not doing it, and God was calling them out on it. That's why this is in Scripture. Now skip to verse 7. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge. Because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty, and people seek instruction from his mouth. It's a bit of what I'm doing tonight. I'm a messenger from the Lord, and you're seeking knowledge, not necessarily my knowledge, knowledge from the Lord, and hopefully God is using me from my mouth. But then it says to these priests, verse 8, But you have turned from the way, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi. And that covenant with Levi it was Levi and his descendants were to be the teachers, the, the priests, and so forth, says the Lord Almighty. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people because you have not followed my ways, but you have shown partiality in matters of the law. So, what did these people do? They were unfair. They were showing favoritism when they shouldn't. They were showing partiality in matters of the law. Some people got away with stuff. They were causing people to stumble. See, these, these, why was God so harsh with these priests? He did not want to be misrepresented. He takes his name, his reputation, very, very seriously. His, their role, just like us as pastors, was to teach the people. He didn't want people to be led astray. He wanted to draw them now towards repentance. And he's still a loving God that was trying to get their attention to help them change. Now let's go on, verse verse 10. Now we kind of shift more into the marriage issue. Um, Do we not all have one father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary of the Lord. Now he's going to tell us how. The Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign God. This, throughout Scripture, was the big sin that was constantly tripping up the nation of Israel. And I think it trips up God's people today. See, it's not about marrying somebody from a different skin color, a different nation, a different country. God's okay with that. What the problem is always is when you have a believer in Jesus Christ marrying someone who's not a believer. Actually worships another God. It would be like you're a believer, you're single, and you meet this wonderful Muslim. Oh, we're going to come together and we're going to have this awesome marriage together. Never going to work. Two different religions, two different gods that people are following. This is what was happening with the nation of Israel. God wanted them to be pure in their relationships because why? Because these marriages would cause the people to stray away from God. They, they would mix. And it, was always, it would seem like it was always where they would go the way towards the pagan gods, not towards the God of Israel. So this is what he's calling them out on. Verse 11, the last part says, By marrying women who worship foreign God. Verse 12, And for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. So again, God's not as concerned about the offering as he is about the heart. He's saying, you know what, if that's the way you're going to be, I don't want your offering. In fact, you should just leave. You should leave this country if that's the way you're going to be. So here's the next point, and this is so important as we get into this topic of marriage for a moment, is that marriage is all about unity. It's always about unity. Amos 3.3 3 says, do two walk together unless they've agreed to do so. A male and a female coming together, two becoming one. That verse is in three different places in Scripture. For this cause, a man will leave his mother and father, be united to his wife, and the two will become one. Unity. How can you be unified with the most important thing in a person's life is their relationship with God? Now I know, again, in a crowd this size, some of you may have become a Christ follower after you're already married. Well, that's no grounds to leave your spouse. It's a grounds to pray for your spouse, and many times they can come to Christ, and you have an extra challenge. If you're now a follower of Jesus Christ, and the person you married maybe before you did is not a follower of Jesus Christ, it's not a ground for divorce, but it is a ground for like praying like crazy to see that person change. Many times that happens, but you don't want to start that way. There's plenty of scriptures that deal with that. So marriage is about two becoming one. You know what really happens, and, and I've learned this, Barbara and I have been married almost 38 years, and I'm just constantly always trying to learn, I'm so different than my wife. We have very different personalities. Of course, I speak male. She speaks female. That's a big enough difference right there. <laughs> but why, why did God bring two different people together? It's not so my wife can be like me, or me to be like my wife. He uses those differences to help us to become more like Jesus. I'll give you one example. I I can be pretty direct. (laughs) My wife is very, very loving. So what she's done for me is help me in my directness, is tone it down to be more loving when I have to deal with issues. What has God done in my life is to help her to bring a little more directness in her loving words you see how God uses differences to help us because the balance of that is more like Christ. In fact, he tells us in Ephesians 4, 15, speak the truth in love. Some of us have no problem speaking the truth. Oh, just tell them, the, tell them what's on my mind. okay? But you don't do it in love. Others of you are like, oh, I could never say that to them. I'm just going to love them, give them a hug. Everything will be just fine. Very loving, but you don't say what you need to say. So again, those differences are to help us to become more like Jesus. Let's keep moving. Verse 13. Another thing you do. You flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or rejects them with pleasure from your hands. Or, or, or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. So the Lord is, you, you, you're all bent out of shape. You're, you're flooding the Lord's altar with tears, because you know God's not accepting you anymore. Verse 14, and you ask, why? Why isn't God accepting me anymore? I just don't feel like I have that closeness with God anymore. Now God's going to answer that question. It's because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. So now we've moved on from marrying the pagan you know, another religion, a a pagan wife, for example. Now we're saying, you're just being unfaithful. You've married another Jewish person, you have the same God, but now you're just being unfaithful to her. You're messing around on the side. Or maybe you're just not loving your spouse like you should. She's been the wife from your youth, so he's mostly directing the men. I think it can go either way. I don't think us men have to carry all the burden of this type of stuff. In fact, when there's an unfaithfulness, it usually requires two, right? But what God is saying here, let's just look at it. This is your marriage covenant. You're unfaithful in a covenant. Now, I want us to put up on the screen for a moment the difference between a covenant and a contract. I learned this many, many years ago. I try to use this with the couples that I do premarital counseling with. Because when I do their wedding, I say, this is going to be a covenant that you're going to be entering into. It's not a contract. The contract's with the state of Florida. The covenant is with God. So let's look at the difference. In a covenant, you give up your rights and you accept your responsibilities, it should say, or our responsibility. We give up our rights and accept our responsibility. That is a covenant. A contract is different. We protect our rights and we limit our responsibilities. Big difference between those two, isn't there? So one is we're giving up. We're, we're taking our responsibilities. We give up our rights. That's, the way, that's how you become two becoming one. But if you want to stay as an individual, and I got my rights, and I don't have to do this or that, I'm going to have a, 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 this contractual relationship, then you're protecting your rights. That's not what God's called for in a marriage. It's a covenant. So the secret of a great marriage is, is more about you being the right person, you doing your part, than even just finding the right person. It's about dying to yourself, becoming more like Jesus. When you have two people becoming like Jesus, man, you're, you're going to have a great marriage. When you have two pe- people, selfish people getting together, kind of like you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, that's a recipe for a, a difficult relationship. So here's a question for all of us. Am I honoring God by keeping my marriage covenant? Am I honoring God by keeping my marriage covenant? Just about had a little heart attack. And I looked at my watch and I thought, I've already 20 minutes over, but read it wrong. <laughs> does that mean I have extra 20 minutes? No, I don't think so. Verse 15, has not the one God made you? He's talking about one, oneness, unity. You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. see, marriage is that the incubator for, for bringing children into the world, to training them to help them to be godly. See the, the, part of the reason for marriage is to bring godly offspring into it. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. We have to more than ever in this world today be on the guard. Now, I just want to minister God's grace. Some of you have gone through a divorce. Maybe it wasn't to your choosing. Okay, I understand that. I've done lots of counseling over the years. I've had a lot of couples in my office, and a lot of times it doesn't work out. But here's the thing. God does allow for divorce in Scripture. You could go to... uh, Uh, 1 Corinthians 7, you could go into the book of Matthew, I think chapter 19. Uh, Adultery is one of those cases where he allows for divorce. Doesn't mean you have to, but he allows for it and also abandonment. Now, abandonment can look many different ways. It could be where a person just completely leaves, moves out, or it could be severe abuse. That can be a form of abandonment. Either way, God is a God of grace. And if you've been divorced, know this. First of all, God says in his word that he hates divorce, but he does not hate divorced people. Why does he hate divorce? Because he knows the ramifications of what can happen. It's like two pieces of paper glued together, now try to separate them. Can you get a nice separation? No, it's going to be all ragged and rough and parts are going to come off on one side or the other and so forth. Well, God has joined together, let no man separate. So divorce can happen. And God's grace, and if you've, and if, and if you were been a victim of divorce, you wanted the marriage, but your spouse walked out on you, here's the thing, it takes two people to make a marriage work. You can be 110% committed to the marriage, but if your spouse doesn't want it, it's not a marriage. So just know that. I'm not trying to heap any, you know, extra burden on those of you that have gone through a divorce and, and, and so forth, but, uh, uh. And if, and if you are going through a difficult marriage right now, seek help. Seek God's help. And you know what? I I've, I've found this in marriage counseling. In every marriage where there's a problem, there's usually one person that's more at blame than the other. But let's say you're the one that's least blamed. Okay, Your marriage isn't going great, but maybe you're only 10% of the problem. There are 90%. So your focus is on them because they're they're mostly to blame, 90%. Yeah, I might say some stuff from time to time, but they're mostly to blame. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Focus on your percentage. Don't focus on the other persons. Focus on what you can do on your side. You may not be able to change your spouse, but you can change yourself. And if you can be forgiving and you can be more loving and you can get it past and and serve them even if they they're they're not Lovable, watch God work. I've seen it over and over in many, many marriages. Focus on your percentage. Don't focus on theirs. But many times, the person who has the least percentage problem in the marriage, and I've never seen it where it's 100% zero, there's always a little piece to it. And so, focus on your part and then pray, pray, pray. Let God do His work. Don't do the role of the Holy Spirit to try to change your spouse. Now we're going to finish with one uh, last verse here, verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. and you have How have we wearied him, you ask? Another question. By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he's pleased with them. Or where is the God of justice? What the people were saying here is, why are these people getting away with everything? These people that are evil, they're getting away with it. They must be good. God, you don't care. You're, you're blessing them. Again, they, were, they weren't understanding the nature of God. Or they were saying, well, God, where's, where's justice here? Here's all I can tell you. This is a, a, an easy one for us, too. Do you ever have this? Do you look at your neighbor, who you know is a complete ungodly person, and they seem to be more blessed than you? <laughs> Does that ever get under your skin? Like, God, why is that happening? I serve at the church. I go twice a week. I, you know, I'm serving. They don't do anything for God. and Look what they just drove into their driveway. (laughs) Why, God? Here's all I can tell you. Is the real blessings aren't here on earth. Our real blessings in heaven, we're passing through. And we can be blessed in our soul when someone else might drive something that looks like a blessing, but they may not have any type of blessing in their soul. So don't look at things like, why is this person getting this and I don't? This is what the people are doing here. They're like, God, you must, you must condone this. You must, you know, why are they? They're evil and they seem to be good and where's God of justice? So here's our last thing is what's important for us, we need to fear God, realize that sin is serious, don't excuse it, don't make light of it, and remember this too about our God, he's patient. He's always patient. That person that seems like they're getting away with stuff, God's working on them. He's patient, though. Aren't you glad he was patient with you? So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, I thank you for your word tonight. I know a lot of tough messages here that you had for the nation of Israel, and I believe you also have them for us. That's why you have them in the word. For all those that right now in their marriages, I pray for strong marriages For everybody listening to this teaching, if they're having a difficulty in their marriage right now, Lord, show them each what they can do on their part. Help their faith to rise up, to pray for their spouse, but to change whatever they need to change on their end of things. Lord, I pray that you would save marriages, that marriages would thrive. I pray against divorce. I pray for reconciliation and forgiveness where it's needed. We pray over these marriages right now in Jesus' name. And for those that have a great marriage, Lord God, let it be a, a, a beacon of light to people around them. Let it open doors, even in as they share with others. The people say, I want a marriage like theirs. Lord, I pray for those that maybe have not been giving God their best, that maybe God has not been their priority and they've They they have not taken it serious. Maybe they've been insecure. They're insecure in God's love. I pray, Lord God, that that people would really be challenged to give to the work of the Lord. They're really given to you, Lord God. Help them to give God priority and give the best to to you, Lord. If people need to realign their priorities, Lord, I pray that you would show them what they need to do differently. And for those who maybe just don't feel secure in your love... Help them to see that you do love them, that the demonstration of that, the greatest demonstration is that when you went to the cross for them, help them to see that the measure of our success, our blessing, is not here on earth, that our names are written in the book of life, that someday we're going to take our last breath here, and we're going to be entering into those pearly gates in heaven, rejoicing and singing hallelujah to you, Lord God, because our sins are forgiven. And help us to never take that lightly, that you've forgiven us. And I pray if there's anyone here that's hearing this message whose sins are not forgiven, they're not a follower of you, I pray at the end of the service that they'd just talk to me. That we'd have an opportunity to pray. An opportunity to make things right between you and them. That they could invite you to be Lord and Savior. Just pray your blessings now over each and every one of us build our faith, our intimacy with you, in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen.